Mark 12, 18 through 27. Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They posed this question, teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies, leaving a wife without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, but he also died without children, and then the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them, and still there were no children. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose, life will, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised... Haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses, in the story of the burning bush? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. You have made a serious error. Good morning. Situated here. Good morning. What? What a week, huh? What a crazy week. We, uh, we're going to jump into this passage, but I just wanted to real quick remind us, let's remember, no matter what craziness happens in Washington, D.C., God is, uh, God is able to accomplish his will on the earth, right? He's the one that raises up leaders and brings them down. He's unmoved. Which brings us to Mark. And uh, really, truly, in a, in a time of confusion, when there's all this stuff going on, questions about what we're to be doing, how we're to be living. Mark's gospel, this is what we've been going through this whole time, it is for disciples. This is a roadmap for us as to how to live in discipleship of Jesus. Mark was written for us as disciples. This morning's passage continues this um, really this, this onslaught of questions posed to Jesus from the religious, political, and social leaders in Jerusalem. If you remember back a few weeks ago, we looked at the, first it was the questions from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Then last week, we looked at the questions from the Pharisees and the Herodians. Remember the, the coin? And now this week, it's the Sadducees' turn. They're going to question Jesus. These questions have ranged from Jesus' authority. What authority do you have to do this, Jesus? 
They're trying to politically trap him to say something that's inflammatory against Caesar. And now they're trying a theological approach. They're going to try to trap him in his theology. It's the Sadducees' turn. What do we know about this, this group, the Sadducees? I know that the kids, they're sad, you see, because <laughs> they don't believe in the resurrection. They're sad. No. Okay. Uh, the, the Sadducees are an interesting group. They really, we don't know that much about them, honestly. There's not that much written about them. Here's some of the things we do know. This is what we know about this group. They were a clerical lay, they were clerical lay aristocrats. They were associated with the priesthood. They belonged to the highest social class of Jewish society. They were marked, Josephus says, they were marked by wealth. They were men of rank. This was an established high social class. Unlike the Pharisee, the Pharisees believed in divine sovereignty. They believed that God was sovereign and he could do whatever he wants. The Sadducees affirmed human free will alone. The Pharisees believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees did not. The Pharisees accepted the broader understanding of Scripture and of Revelation. They accepted all of the Old Testament, the Torah, the writings, and the prophets. And in addition, they accepted the oral tradition. The Sadducees accepted only the Torah, only the first five books of your Bible, the law of Moses. And finally, and probably most important for our story today, the Pharisees affirmed the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees specifically denied it. This was a key thing for them. The Sadducees' denial of angels, of demons, and of an afterlife, it derived from their exclusive reliance on the Torah, which didn't clearly articulate these doctrines. The Sadducees were, they were the theological conservatives of the day, whereas the Pharisees which I know we think of this different, but the Pharisees were the progressives. They were pushing the boundaries a little bit. The Sadducees were so focused on this life in this world, they were so focused on preserving their power, their status, their wealth, that they had no room for a messianic hope. They had no room for a coming age. All they could see was what was right in front of them. And they used their view of Scripture to make the case for their arrogant self-sufficiency and for them to not put enough emphasis on God's providence, on God's sovereignty. So they come to Jesus and they try to trap him with this theological question. They make up this hypothetical case, this... This story actually is not new. There's actually uh, apocryphal books dealing with this. The Pharisees had a whole argument around this actual hypothetical argument. The Pharisees had already dealt with it. 
Um, so they come up and they make this case about this poor woman who keeps having her husbands die on her over and over seven times. And in their mind, this hypothetical scenario, it proves how crazy the resurrection of the dead is. It proved it ridiculous. Because if you think about it, they're saying, this is their argument, the law of Moses requires this, uh, this widow marriage practice, which interestingly enough, in the lineage of Jesus, there's, there's a couple women involved that were a part of this practice. This is not like an abnormal thing. Um, so the law of Moses required this, but it also requires monogamy. And so what, what happens in the resurrection? Their, their logic seems to make sense on the surface. They're saying if the resurrection of the dead is just like what we know in life here, this doesn't work. And for me, I think the crux of this whole passage is Jesus' response to them. The essence here is Jesus says, this is verse 24, Jesus says to them, is, it, is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Remember, these guys didn't believe in the afterlife, the angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Yet Jesus says their entire idea of the resurrection is flawed because they knew not the scriptures nor the power of God. They assumed, probably rationally, because they didn't believe in angels and the such, that the resurrection, in the resurrection things would be just like they are now, just like they are in this earth. People would be marrying. Life would go on. You guys ever had these, these sort of hypothetical questions? I know, like, I, I wonder, like, what is coffee going to be like in the resurrection? What is, I mean, Jesus talks about drinking wine. What's, what's the wine going to be like in the resurrection? Like, anyways, those are fun questions, right, to think about. But, but it's, uh, the resurrection is going to be your body is going to be altogether different. That's what Jesus is saying. We can't think of it in the same way uh, as we think of life now. Jesus says, verse 25, For when they raise from the dead, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now that doesn't mean, this, this passage has been used, and people think that that means that we t- become angels. I, that's not what Jesus is saying here. That wasn't, a, that wasn't and isn't uh, an orthodox thing. He's saying that in some mysterious way, your body's altogether different, like the angels. There's no need. And Jesus, he, he goes to the story of the burning bush to shut down this theological trick. I love that he doesn't even, like, play around with it and debate. He just goes right to the only scripture, the heart of the only scripture that they accept and says, you're wrong, and here it is. And uh, if you take a sec, if you read the story of the burning bush, 
it could be hard, I think, first. It's a little odd. A little like, how is Jesus arguing for the resurrection out of this passage? But here's what he says. Verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. His logic here is that God is, <clears throat> God is saying that he is, present tense, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And if God is saying that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then either they are somehow alive now, or the resurrection is so sure that he speaks as though they are. For he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Tim Keller, commenting on this passage, says like this. He says, Notice that Jesus does not hang his hopes on life after death like the Greeks did on some part of us that's immortal. Rather, he rests in the commitment of God to us. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a commitment that God is making to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's their God. This is a very powerful argument, Tim Keller says, for the life after death. We have a God who cannot, at our death, scrap that which is so precious to him. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, as the Sadducees believe, then God's promise to them was limited to the duration of their life, which renders his promise finite and unfulfilled. But God's word, however, cannot be bound. It's a promise of divine potential. God would not pledge himself to the dead unless the dead would be raised to life. That's the point. Jesus' argument for the reality of the resurrection is based on an assumption that the call of God to establish a relationship with God, and once a relationship with God is established, it bears the promise forever. It cannot be ended even by death. Jesus says, I love this, he says, you are quite wrong. You're mistaken. For Jesus, the resurrection of the dead was not an optional doctrine. This was a, uh, this was a non-negotiable for him, clearly. As it is for us, we confess this every week. <laughs> The resurrection of the dead was the central doctrine of everything that was about to happen, everything that, that Jesus was here to do. If you get the resurrection wrong, so to speak, you get it all wrong. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And here's where I think this gets interesting for us. If we're honest, I think we have a lot in common with these Sadducees. We can be so focused on life, on this life, on life that's in front of us, on preserving our power, our comfort, our wealth, our rights, 
that we leave no room for the power of God and we completely miss the story of God that's unfolding before us. We can forget or ignore the story of God. We can completely miss the power of God. And those two things are our anchor, the story of God, the scriptures, and the power of God to accomplish what he says in the word. We're a few weeks into the new year. How are those Bible reading plans going? I'm I'm sure a lot of you started some Bible reading plans. How's it going? Into Genesis here. What's so good about a through-the-year Bible reading plan, trying to read the Bible in a year, is it reminds us of the grand narrative. It reminds us of the drama of redemption, the story. Over and over again, we, we remember this story. Therefore, we can remember our place in it and that God is powerful. We remind ourselves of the power of God. I think we often make God out to be too little, too small. And in reality, he's far more capable of doing whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. He's completely other than. He's holy. No one can compare. You can't even fathom how powerful he is. I was talking about this passage this week with Char. He sent me this quote from Ronald Rollheiser that just says this so well. It said, the resurrection is always, as it was the first time, a surprise. Totally unexpected. The impossible. That which defies all logic. It defies the law of nature. And it defies wisdom and common sense and common convention. Yet we, we are prone, we, we have slimmed God down in grace to fit our own small minds. This is the trap the Sadducees fell in, and, and I feel like we are prone to this. I'm prone to this. I'm prone to slim God down to fit what I feel like is comfortable. Jesus says, <laughs> you know not the power of God. Our entire culture is built on a rational, scientific, secular worldview where the resurrection from the dead is just crazy talk. Yet it's the, it's the cornerstone of everything we believe. We esteem science and proven facts and, and truth over everything else. Our whole faith is built on this one doctrine, this one reality, the resurrection of the dead, that Christ is raised from the dead. We confess this every Sunday. This is essential. I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and actually just read a large chunk of Scripture. Sometimes I feel like Paul says this better than I can, so let's, we're just going to read a, a rather large chunk of Scripture here. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to start in verse 1. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, 
this is really a really good place. This is a good passage for you <laughs> to come back to regularly because Paul is reminding the Corinthian church, he's reminding believers the gospel. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the words that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, for Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. See that the power of God and the story of God working together. And he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. And he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of, him are stu- most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, the grace, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you have believed. Verse 12. Now if Christ is, proclaimed, Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? So clearly, Paul is still dealing with the same argument that Jesus was dealing with. How can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. See his his logic there? For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. But the fact, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits. That means there's more to come of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's talking about Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. This is our hope. This is what we believe. This is the anchor of our faith that all will rise. Okay, so what, what does this mean for us? That's besides core doctrine, what does this mean for us this week? Think about, think about this pandemic. Think about our current political situation. Think about what's going on in the earth. No matter, 
what your thoughts are, where you stand. This is all brought fear. There's fear. Some of us, maybe we're cavalier about this whole thing. Maybe we seem not to be afraid. But actually, there, there is there's fear of government power, government overreach, government control, some nefarious plot possibly. People are fearful of big pharma, whatever it is. Some people are devastated right now with the current political situation, everything that's happening in D.C. Still looking for a man as their savior. Guys, we, we have a king, right? His name is Jesus, and he is able. Others, still others, are afraid for their lives. They're afraid for the lives of their loved ones. Some have genuine concerns. There's real, there, there is really people getting sick. Others possibly are just kind of going along with the trends of the social media pressure. There's, there's multiple sides. All of this is going on. The common thing here is there's fear. Fear everywhere. Every side is afraid of something. I wonder if we're remembering the story of God, the scriptures, and the power of God. Are we thinking, are we reminding ourselves? Either way, guys, we have to remind ourselves all the time that our God is able. He is strong. His arm is not too short to save, like we just sang. He is able to accomplish his will on the earth. And he might be doing that through something that's uncomfortable for you, something that you don't like, something that is bothering you. Sometimes he uses world situation to accomplish his will on the earth. That's a reality. He is able to do what he wants to do. Sometimes the way things are going doesn't make sense. We want it to make sense. We want it to fit our logic. We want it to fit our view of Scripture. Our Western minds demand logic. It has to make sense. But we serve a resurrected Jesus. And it won't always make sense. It won't always fit the logic. But he does things, and he does things all often, that will offend our sensibilities. They'll offend our logic. Sometimes it'll offend your understanding of Scripture. So we have to constantly go again, remind ourselves of the story of God, remind ourselves of the power of God. Our God is big. He is able. His arm is not too short. He can accomplish what he sets out to accomplish. We're going to go back into some worship. I wanted to remind you, those of you that are here, if you're not with us, if you're at home watching this or with a small group, maybe you can grab some communion. I just want to remind us that we do this every time we get together. I know this is a little different than normal. We have these kind of silly 
self-serve <laughs> contraptions, wafer and some grape juice. But we do this communion as often as we gather, we remind ourselves. The point of this is to remind ourselves of the good news. Recite the gospel to yourself. Remember that Jesus, he came, he lived, he taught, he died, and he was raised again and ascended to heaven. That's what we do when we take this. We remember the gospel. We recite the gospel over and over again until it becomes just a part of everything that we are so that we, instead of looking to logic and looking to politics or whatever it is, we go to the story of God and the power of God. We can have confidence that he is able because of what he accomplished and what we remember through this communion. Because of the cross, he is able to do whatever he wants to do. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This week, maybe as you get together with a small group, or you have some time to think, I just want to encourage you, just think through what situations in your life do you need to know that God is big enough to handle? How are you reminding yourself of the story of God this week? How are you reflecting on the story of God? Are you more concerned about this life than the reality of the coming age? Let's pray real quick and the worship team can come back up. God, I just thank you that you are more than able Your arm is not too short to save. You are powerful. God, I ask that this morning we would remember not only the story of God, but also the power of God. God, that you would remind us again that you are strong and you are capable. God, I ask that you would give each of us a revelation of who you are, high and exalted, seated on the throne, unmoved by the political situation around us, unmoved by a pandemic. God, you are capable. You are strong. And Jesus, we trust you. Teach us to lean on your strength and your power. Teach us to remember all that you are and all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.